Dead and Gone in Wyoming is made possible by the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Riverton is a gateway to adventure located right in the middle of the Cowboy State. It's a hub for experiencing the best the state has to offer. Attractions like Yellowstone and the Tetons, world-class skiing, mountain recreation, casino gaming, cultural and historical sites on and around the Wind River Reservation. Riverton has the best access to one of the best states in the country, and when you're visiting, you'll want to stay at the best. The Hampton Inn and Suites is conveniently located, serves a free hot breakfast too. Make plans to stay at the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, and feel the Hamptonality. But just as misery cannot crawl across an endless path, so does the trail of happiness occasionally reach the sharp end. Carla Atchison from The Last Gift. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and I've received several great emails from listeners to the podcast in the last few months, many of which include stories for us to follow up on and share. So please keep those cases, comments, and questions coming. I love hearing your thoughts about the show. WyomingPodcast at gmail.com. I should probably get better about responding to a lot of those, but uh, rest assured, I have seen your email if you have sent me one. They say Wyoming is a small town, and that's never more apparent to me than when we come out with an episode with connections to so many people who listen to the show. Never ceases to amaze me. So I have a stack of emails to work through over the next few episodes full of cases to cover, and those are the stories that we'll be bringing you into the spring. Today's story of surreality comes from listener Alyssa, who writes that as a fourth grader at an elementary school in Green River, she had no way of knowing that her teacher had been targeted for murder. Beyond that even, and this shouldn't be a surprise to me at this point, digging into Alyssa's email further, there was a deeper and even darker story to tell. Parasite is the overarching umbrella term for the act of killing one's parents. More specifically, matricide is the killing of a mother and patricide is the murder of a father. Without falling too far into a larger philosophical abyss of moral relativism, that phenomenon is worth a look. And right up front, I have to hope that all of this is marginally as interesting, I guess, as the word to you as it is to me. And I apologize in advance for the nerdiness, I guess. I don't know what the word is. Whatever you call my interest in such things. After 10 years of researching mostly U.S.-based criminality, parasite is one of the few aspects of homicide that I really don't feel like I have a great handle on, to be honest, or the other way around, for that matter. Part of the reason for that is because it's so rare. The latest statistics indicate that the killing of a parent accounts for about 2% of all homicides in America. Interestingly, it's a little more common in Europe, still rare, but as many as 4% of European homicides are committed against parents by sons or daughters. Twice as high as in the U.S., but still pretty rare. Uncommonality aside, the most significant disconnect I think I have to this has to do with the motivating factors. The parent-child relationship 
in both directions, is a lifelong connection by definition, and it's the only such connection that we'll ever have. To assume anything beyond that in terms of meaning and the nature of those relationships would be naive, of course. I don't have to tell anybody listening about the deep complications that those lifetime connections that we have with our parents can create. And I know I don't have to remind anyone that they're not always positive relationships. The parent-child dynamic in both directions can be the deepest, most meaningful relationship a person has. It can also be the most detrimental for the same reasons. Most often, it's some complicated combination of the middle. But in terms of the prevailing motivation for homicide generally, the most common being a personal connection to a person, money, and romantic entanglements, jealousy and possession, things like that. Parents and children as victims and perpetrators don't often account for those motivations. It may become financially convenient at some point for a person's parents to pass away and leave material possessions and wealth to them, sometimes. But we also encounter other relationships in the meantime that provide a similar financial opportunity with less of that personal connection that many people have with their parents. And even all that assumes, of course, that someone would be so inclined to premeditatively kill anyone, let alone somebody that they know, let alone someone that they've had that connection with, whether or not the connection has been wholly positive or even positive at all. For the vast, vast majority of us, our learned morality and the rules of society are more than sufficient to prevent us from even somewhat seriously considering killing anybody. But there is a small percentage, obviously, who are not sufficiently swayed by these pressures and end up taking human life. Whether or not someone is born with a greater inclination toward that kind of behavior isn't totally known. Nobody can really say otherwise, at least not yet. That said, criminalists and psychologists are learning more about it constantly, why people commit murder in the first place. Consider that as late as the 1950s, what we now refer to as a serial killer was thought by most in law enforcement to be a unicorn, a myth, an impossibility. And it wasn't a significant area of criminal study until the 70s. Fifty years later, not only is the phenomenon of serial murder universally accepted by criminal justice professionals on all sides, but practically everyone with a Netflix account is allowed to feel as though they're an expert on the subject. So, in many ways, when it comes to murder, we're still at the very beginning of the race for understanding. Is someone a killer? Are they born one? What causes it? This revolving larger discussion is generally what criminal psychologists refer to as nature versus nurture. A genetic predisposition versus a learned and or evolved behavior as a result of childhood formation of behavior later in life as it relates to later violent crimes that a person ultimately commits. Here's how I think about it, though. It's a basic kind of rule, just so I can have some kind of understanding of the, the concept, that comes from, of all people, addiction specialists. If you think of a person on a scale of 1 to 10, and in this case 10 is a person who eventually commits premeditated murder, we're all genetically a little bit different, and we all have different childhood and early life experiences which form our decision-making later in life to a large extent. The people who we become personally involved with, friends, romantic relationships, the decisions that we make about money even, and how we're able to interact with society generally, and I'm sure there are a hundred other factors that should go into this equation. All of that eventually plays a large part in the risk factors that we carry forward as well. Drugs and alcohol, mental illness, person's temper, it all factors in. Plenty of people are born into beyond terrible situations and will never kill anybody. 
while others are born genetically basically normal, they're raised in great homes with every societal advantage, and they may go on to be a serial murderer of a dozen victims. So this is no doubt an oversimplification, but the way I think about it is this. Some killers are born at a one, and their ensuing life experience eventually brings them up the scale to ten. Some are born at an eight on the scale and never kill anyone. But no matter where we all start out in life, what every murderer has in common is that eventually they make it to 10. On Friday, January 8, 1999, a 25-year-old Wyoming resident named Bob Duke and his 31-year-old brother, Mike, were apprehended by the FBI in Houston, Texas. Charged with conspiracy to use interstate commerce facilities, i.e. telephone calls, to conspire to kill their parents. The government alleged that beginning two months before on Halloween Day, Bob Duke spoke with another man, a childhood friend of the Duke brothers, who still lived in Green River, Wyoming. Initially, the calls weren't about killing anyone specifically. The Duke brothers were asking about obtaining 9mm pistols equipped with silencers for the purposes of carrying out several unspecified, quote-unquote, hits in the Houston, Texas area. In those initial conversations, the Dukes apparently didn't mention their parents, who were both teachers back home in Wyoming, as potential targets. But by November, Bob Duke was offering to pay that longtime friend up to $25,000 if he would commit the murders himself of Larry and Roberta Duke. According to federal prosecutors, the plan soon after became more elaborate. Mike Duke's involvement became a part of the plan. The idea became to pay the family friend $5,000 to drive Mike from Denver to Green River and then act as a lookout while Mike committed the double murder of the Duke parents himself. The plot had evolved through a few different variations by this point, but it was happening quickly now. Suddenly, there was a date for the planned murder circled on the calendar, January 24th, arranged by telephone, according to the government. The FBI typically wouldn't become involved in this case necessarily. Just because it's a murder for hire doesn't necessarily give federal authorities jurisdiction. It can if a crime or a planned crime meets certain criteria like the distribution of drugs or if the plot were hatched on a reservation, for example. But federal agents had a tap on these phone calls between the Duke brothers and their apparent accomplice, and they're not going to hear a date for a planned double murder and just sit by and do nothing either. So two weeks before everything was supposed to go down back in Wyoming, the FBI scooped up the Duke brothers with those phone conspiracy charges in Texas. Each phone call theoretically could represent a separate instance of interstate conspiracy to commit a crime. Each of those counts carries a maximum of 10 years in prison, meaning the brothers could conceivably receive half a century of prison time if they were convicted just of these charges. Faced with this daunting possibility, the brothers initially pleaded not guilty in February of 1999, but soon after entered into plea negotiations with the federal government. The Duke brothers would be sentenced later that summer. Roberta Duke, despite allegedly being a target for murder, along with her husband, pleaded with a federal judge in Cheyenne who would hand down the sentence for leniency on her sons. She told the court she was not then and had never been afraid of them, saying, quote, I think stupidity was involved here. I want them home, end quote. Bob Duke, for his part, rather surreally expressed remorse to the judge for having made such a silly mistake, saying, quote, I'm very embarrassed and very sorry. I want a chance to make it up to my parents, end quote. Similarly, Bob Duke's attorney did the best he could to minimize the impact of the case in front of the judge. Guilt or innocence was no longer in question. The Duke brothers would be pleading guilty. But the issue of how much prison time each brother would or wouldn't receive was very much still at the discretion of the judge. 
Aided by the testimony of the brother's parents, Bob Duke's attorney further sought to separate the actions of the younger brother from what federal investigators and prosecutors saw as a very real and very imminent threat to the lives of two school teachers in Green River, Wyoming. Bob Duke's lawyer may not have used the words practical joke in his arguments, but it was clear from his delivery that the plan was basically to convince the judge that these series of phone calls and their discussed content was more hypothetical fantasy than deadly reality. The judge, though, was not moved, at least as it pertained to the younger Duke, and determined that Bob had masterminded a scheme to kill his parents, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Mike Duke was sentenced to 21 months, followed by three years of supervised release for failing to report this plan as it happened to law enforcement. The Dukes would serve their sentences at separate prison facilities in Colorado. One of the factors the judge in the case was obligated to consider in the sentencing of Bob Duke was his lack of criminal history, and it was true. Insofar as Bob Duke had never been committed of a serious crime before his arrest on those federal conspiracy charges in 1999. But then there was the matter of what happened years earlier on the jagged cliffs outside of Green River, Wyoming, where Lost Dog Road abruptly ends high above the Flaming Gorge Reservoir. Bob Duke had been there before many times. He'd grown up in the area, after all. And the fact that he was indeed standing on that rocky face on one windy summer afternoon in August 1996 had never been in dispute. The three of them had made for a perfect family photograph. Bob Duke, father, husband, before the drugs and alcohol took hold, tall, dark, some would say handsome, and his high school girlfriend, then wife, Liana, and the couple's beautiful son, Eric who had celebrated his fifth birthday two days before. All three were there, on the cliff, overlooking the water on that day. It is the most difficult thing to imagine, that fall. Some would say unimaginable, and maybe that's why it took so long to understand and to uncover. It had been a terrible accident, Bob Duke had said. He'd turned his back for only a moment, and then heard a scream. Whirling around from the area of the family car, he could no longer see Liana, or his son Eric. Both were suddenly gone. It's maybe the most terrible ending to a family imaginable, if you're able to even partially think of the fear and the confusion and the impact hundreds of feet below. Liana Duke and five-year-old Eric died on that day. But what had been behind their fall? Or who? Six years following the tragic deaths of Liana and Eric Duke, husband, father, and Green River native Bob Duke was in the courtroom once again. This time around, according to prosecutors, there had not only been a plot to murder two people, but the plot had been carried out by perhaps the one man the victims trusted the most. And the victims this time would not be Bob Duke's father and mother, but his high school girlfriend turned wife and the couple's five-year-old son. A scale model of that red cliff over Flaming Gorge Reservoir wasn't the real thing, of course, but the five-foot-tall representation loomed over the court proceedings. It could not be ignored. As one prosecutor said in court, it's not a picnic area, it's a murder weapon. While the conspiracy charges he'd faced before had been federal, he now faced state murder-for-hire allegations, in addition to the double murder of his wife and son. Six charges in all. Rolling the two cases into one made sense to some, but in a practical sense, these were two separate cases. Following the adjudication of the federal charges, local prosecutors were confident that they could prove murder for hire to a jury. 
After all, there were all these phone calls, tape conversations in which Bob Duke himself can be heard masterminding the demise of his parents. From the phone calls, Bob Duke could clearly be heard saying, quote, a 22 is quiet enough. No one can think it's any more than a door slam, end quote. Proving that Bob Duke had been responsible for the deaths of Liana and Eric, though, was a different mountain to climb altogether. After all, there had been no witnesses. Bob Duke had never denied that he'd been there when he said his wife and child suffered a tragic fall off the cliff as his back had been turned. Duke's claim of accidental fall had not been proven false at any point in these six years leading up to the trial either, due in no small part to the fact that there was no physical evidence or forensic evidence at all to indicate that Bob Duke had caused their falls. But the prosecutor in the case also realized there was almost no likelihood of any evidence materializing in the future either. There wasn't going to be a witness, a dog walker, a day hiker, who at this point, so many years later, following all of the local press attention that the Falls had received at the time, who was going to now come forward and produce some account of seeing Bob Duke shove first one and then the other of his panicked wife and small child to their certain death below. Nor the prosecutor knew, does there exist a magical evidence fairy who is going to deliver one day out of the blue some kind of physical link between Bob Duke at the top of the cliffs above the water and the dead mother and son on the uncaring rocks hundreds of feet below? Circumstances in cases like this are the things they don't teach you about in law school. A young, maybe ambitious, often idealistic prosecutor will certainly understand the concept of prosecutorial discretion. When he or she begins practicing, they'll be able to discuss that concept in depth. They'll be able to quote relevant legal statutes, chapter and verse. But until your task in the system involves a decision between charging a case, a murder case no less, with no witnesses or evidence, weighed against the very likely probability that charges may never be filed at all, it can't have been an easy decision. And there's very good legal reasoning as to why Bob Duke maybe never should have been charged with the murders of his family, well, his other family, at all. In that place at that time, that decision was Harold Moneyhuns to make, and he chose to roll the dice, in spite of a difficult case to prove to a jury. Was it ethical to bring such serious charges against anyone with so little evidence? And Moneyhun knew there would be only one shot. If they charged and tried Bob Duke and he was found not guilty, he could never be charged for the crime again. But as Money Hun put it, quote, at this point, there was just this feeling that someone had to stand up for Liana and Eric. It was not a total Hail Mary. A grand jury had voted to indict based on the same evidence that he'd be using in court. But there's a difference between the two proceedings. That vote only indicated that Bob Duke was reasonably responsible for the murders of his wife and son based on a preponderance of the evidence. In other words, 51%. The bar the state has to meet in a criminal trial, that of beyond a reasonable doubt, as we've discussed before on this podcast, is a much higher burden of proof to meet. The murder charges in the case would ultimately come down to one man, Roger Brauberger, who was not an eyewitness to the alleged double murder, but if he was telling the truth, it might just be enough to prove an otherwise very thin murder case, at least in the minds of one particular jury. From an Associated Press account of the trial, Quote, Roger Brauberger was one of the first witnesses to testify. Nervously, he slid into the witness chair and gazed around the packed courtroom, taking it all in, the bailiffs, the jury, the crowd. Finally, his eyes settled on Duke, sitting a few yards in front of him. In leg shackles and a suit, Duke looked paler than Brauberger remembered, and much older. He was nearly bald, and his eyes looked cold. 
There was hardly a trace of the skinny, dark-haired youth who had once been his best friend. The two men stared at each other intently. For a fleeting moment, Brauberger forgot the court, his testimony, the knot in his stomach. For a fleeting moment, he let his mind drift back, back to the days when they were just two foolish kids, tearing around the desert in Duke's pickup truck, shooting rabbits and drinking beer, and dreaming that beyond the cliffs and the gorge and the endless dust, life held something different for them, something glorious. How did he ever get to this point, he wondered. What went wrong? And then he remembered carrying Eric's little coffin and Liana's battered face. I've got to do this right, he thought, so they can rest in peace. For the next four hours, Brauberger testified in a case that could put his old friend away for life. He described how Duke had first approached him to kill his wife and child, and how years later he had come to him once again for help. He said, I've done family before and I didn't like it, Brauberger told the court. Would you be interested in killing my parents? End quote. The photographs of the dead wife and her young son, after impact, were graphic and unsettling enough to move some in the courtroom to tears. Such imagery is not unusual in a murder trial, with the outcome of the case almost entirely decided by 12 human beings, after all. But lacking physical evidence that juries expect when charges are brought that are so severe, and the stakes for so many are so high, the case's prosecutor would provide more weight to what some might call the emotional facts of the case more so than usual. Duke's defense lawyer was as aware as anyone of just what wasn't there in the state's case. Nobody had seen Bob cause the deadly falls of his wife and child. Nothing on the bodies could definitively point back to Bob as being the cause of their deaths. This was a case, Duke's defense lawyer argued, that was nothing more than an example of an overzealous prosecutor who was resting his entire case on the word of a single witness, a witness who had not even been on the cliffs on the day of the tragic falls. Even if Bob Duke had confided in his friend Roger Brauberger that he had committed the murders of his wife and child on that day in August of 96, confessing to those crimes while certainly indicting was far from the burden of proof that's required by the state to convict Bob for double murder. False confessions do happen, and sometimes they are extraordinarily detailed and convincing, which is why, Duke's lawyer argued passionately before the jury, physical evidence is required. The days of a person being convicted of such a serious crime on words alone were a thing of the past. Near the end of the 20th century now, cooperating science was required in order to prevent another tragic injustice. For it is better that a hundred killers go free than one innocent man spend the rest of his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. To say nothing of the credibility or lack of credibility, at least according to the defense, of the star witness himself, Roger Brauberger, Duke's lawyers alleged, was consumed by every angle of the drug world in Wyoming. He was not just a user, but a pusher and a dealer. And think whatever you want to about Bob Duke knowing what you know about him now. You know, the whole plot to kill his parents thing. But as was pointed out by his lawyers at the time of the sudden death of his wife and child in 96, Duke had no significant criminal history, certainly no history of criminal or domestic violence on his record. Beyond Mr. Brauberger, the defense did its best to discredit what few expert witnesses had been brought by the state to testify. One witness was presented as an expert on falls, whatever that was, and even that witness could not bring forth one single shred of proof that any crime had taken place on the Red Cliffs over Flaming Gorge on that day. There had been no evidence of strangulation on the bodies, no wounds of any kind, in fact, that couldn't be explained by the tragic and terrible fall of a mother holding the hand of her young son, perhaps at the precise moment that she lost her footing 
when she only had a split second to try to find a way to correct her momentum. If, the defense in the case argued, if there had been any smoke in these circumstances at all, there was certainly no fire. Had there been, it would have been reasonable to assume, the initial investigation would have resulted in an arrest closer to 1996 than seven years later now, at the time of the trial in 2003. People hate when I say this, but it is the absolute truth. In the eyes of a criminal trial, whether a person committed a crime or not has nothing to do with whether or not they should be found guilty. Some countries in the world actually find you guilty or innocent. That's the actual legal terminology. Some countries have judges or juries choose between proven or not proven. In America, the options are guilty or not guilty. Has the prosecution proven the guilt of the accused or not? Their prospective innocence has nothing to do with it. At least it's not supposed to. And this case may be the best example of a case where, as a juror, you may very well think that Bob Duke, yes, pushed his wife and five-year-old child off a cliff to their deaths on that day. But if you are not all but certain, based on only the evidence that's provided by the state of Wyoming, you are to find him as a juror not guilty. Because of all of this and more, Duke's defense team surely felt at least some hope in being able to earn an acquittal in this case. And then a woman walked into the middle of the proceedings to make a simple statement. I have to tell the truth, she said. Again from the Associated Press, Crystal Robinson told the court that when Liana and Eric were still alive, she had been Duke's girlfriend. He would drive her to those cliffs at the end of Lost Dog Trail. There among the rocks and the dust and the sunsets, they would drink beer and make out, and he would tell her over and over that he wanted out of his marriage. When she asked why he just didn't get a divorce, she said, Duke always gave the same answer. He wanted to find a way out in which he would not have to pay child support. And just like that, a motive. After eight hours of jury deliberations, Bob Duke was found guilty on all six counts. He was later sentenced to a life term for each of the counts against him, six in all, four of which he was allowed to serve concurrently. So in effect, Duke was sentenced to life twice, once for Liana and once for Eric. Standing in a prison jumpsuit at his sentencing, Duke appeared largely void of emotion. There was an apology of sorts. I'm sorry, he said, if my grief did not meet the expectations of the public. Plots K-46A and B of the Riverview Cemetery in Green River, Wyoming, are where Liana and Eric Duke rest to this day, side by side as they've been in their lives and their deaths, and now the hereafter. Sources for this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming were the Casper Star Tribune and the Associated Press. I want to thank our Patreon supporters. As always, it's my intention to get new episodes to our Patreon supporters earlier and earlier now before their release. And if anybody has any thoughts on bonus content, additional content that we might be able to provide, please let me know about that or anything else that anybody else would like to share. Wyomingpodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks again to the listener who suggested this story and who, as so often is the case in this small town, of Wyoming had some small personal connection to it. We always appreciate your listening and support of the show. That's all the time we have for this episode, as always. For everyone right here at County 10, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode 
of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. <laughs>